Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13. We're in starting another chapter. Yippee. We're close. We're, we're, not, we're not too far from the, from the uh, tape at this point. Seven verses today. I know it sounds like a lot, and we do have a lot um, to deal with today. So um, I'm going to deal with the first seven verses, which deal with a subject that we don't talk about much. These seven verses deal with um, how we think, how we feel, and, and how we behave towards the government God has given us. Really pragmatic stuff, and, and probably uncomfortable at, at some level. Um, this is not a political discussion. I don't really care one way or another. I mean, not that I don't have my own opinions, but that's not what the pulpit's for. I'm not here to present to you how you should vote. I'm here to tell you how God wants you to live. And, and it does intersect with how we treat our government, okay? And I think predominantly what it's going to confront is, uh, is a couple of things I think are classically acceptable sins in the church. And that is the critical nature in which we treat government and then the hopelessness we feel about our government, okay? Two things that I think are kind of uh, in competition with the gospel in believers, and it has to do with this, this uh, issue of our leadership. Before we get into this passage, though, I want us to make sure that we're clear on the flow of Paul's argument. Remember where he started in, in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that we are a people that are so transformed by the mercies of God that we are radically different people who love others and love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's something that's happened to us because the gospel raised to new life, new hearts, new eyes, new passions, new affections, new kingdom, all of that's changing. In view of that mercies, we go then and do other things. We live different ways. In fact, we're so different that we stand out. Chapter 12, and now chapter 13, is pragmatic ways in which, in view of the mercies of God, the church goes out and lives and loves. Understood? So let me just remind you a little bit of where we've been. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. Everything anchors on this phrase, uh, everything else that Paul says in this book. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If you've been here for the last, I don't know, six or eight weeks, you've heard us get practical in, in the sense of how we are transformed. In fact, I, I would call chapter 12, Paul's so what to the mercies of God for the church, that we are supposed to be uh, so different based on God's grace to us that he, in, he gifts us and we use those gifts to serve the church, that we work really, really hard. We give it our all because of the gospel in us and we care deeply. We're a passionate people who really feel for what we do. We... Um, we rejoice in the hope of our salvation, Paul says. We bear up under tribulation and pressure. That's what we do. In spite of the suffering, we bear up under it. We pray a lot as a people. We're generous to the cause of Christ. We're hospitable to people. We um, bless our persecutors. We feel deeply with others' needs and concerns. We get along with one another. We're humble people. We don't repay evil for evil. And we care for, as ridiculous as this sounds, for our enemies. Now, I'm not saying all those particulars that Paul has laid out in chapter 12 are easy. They're not easy, but at least you understand context. When I say that the whole transformation part of the gospel makes us a lover of God and people, everything we've studied so far fits in that file, right? 
I'm supposed to treat others different. I'm supposed to respond to people different. I'm supposed to believe in God and love him more than anything else. When we get to these seven verses in chapter 13, it's hard at first blush to see where they fit. In fact, there are many theologians who would suggest for a second that uh, verses 1 through 7 don't fit here contextually, that they're not Pauline in nature, that it would read better if you just stuck chapter 12 right onto chapter 8, and it would flow in thought, continuation of what it is to love others and love God. But I'm going to suggest to you an understanding of the the context of, uh, of the people and the circumstances of which Paul is writing makes total sense that this fits in the in the objective of, of love, okay? Um, just to give you um, that perspective, Paul is writing to Christians, some Jewish Christians uh, uh, who've been converted, and they are living in the capital of the Roman Empire where, where the previous em- emperor, Claudius, kind of kicked out the Jews in Acts chapter 18 for fear of opposition. The, Jew, uh, the Romans thought that the Christians were some kind of radical Jewish sect. They had heard the words of Christ that these, he's coming to present a different kingdom. They're a little afraid of pushback, and so th- they're concerned. And, by the way, Nero happens to be the, the emperor at the time that Paul writes this. The circumstances are ripe for conflict. If there's going to be uh, revolution, if there's going to be war, if there's going to be pushback, all the circumstances are lined up. At least in the, in the Romans' picture, their mindset towards Christians and possibly Christians towards the circumstances they're in. So it fits perfectly in the concept of what it's like to, to live in view of the kingdom of God, by the mercies of God, live differently towards people, specifically our leaders and our government. See where this fits? So... It's with that as a backdrop, this is a practical, a practical, radical response to how we should relate. So let's read this and pray and ask God for wisdom. Verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those who exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities, resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Let's pray together. God, I pray you help us um, submit to this passage. I pray, God, you soften our heart to the spirit that we'd listen for where we're out of line. We seek your grace in repentance, and we love as you've called us to love. God, I thank you for um, the word and how seriously practical it is for us. Pray that we get that message today in Christ's name. Amen. Paul makes four points, so let's get after it. Here's the first one. Real, real simple. In the first two verses, God gave us our government, so submit to it. Any questions? We're going to be done in five minutes if you get this. Pretty simple, right? And I, and I know in the following verses, three through seven, he's going to give us more reasons why, more mo- motivation why we should do that. But I, I personally believe that one and two have enough motivation in and of themselves 
for us to obey and to submit to our governments. Here's how Paul lays out these two verses. Very simply, in the first half of verse 1, he simply presents us with the command. Everyone to every authority submit. Right? Pretty simple. The second half of verse 1, he gives us the reason why we should submit. For he says this, for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. So the reason why we submit to all authority is simple, because God's sovereign. He's sovereign over whatever, whatever government or authority we have, and so we submit to God by submitting to it. The last part of this in verse 2 is the logical conclusion from those two truths, from the command and then the the reality of God's sovereignty. He says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. You get the math here? You understand? Here's the command, and here's why. God is sovereign. And if you choose not to submit to the authority God's placed you under, it's as if you're not submitting to God himself. Make sense? It's God who we're resisting when we don't submit to those authorities. Now, this is not um, the only place in Scripture that deals with these specifically, uh, Titus, uh, Paul tells uh, Titus to remind people to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, for ev- ready for every good work. Um, Peter, in, in chapter 2, almost word for word, says what Paul says here. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Let me ask you a question. Does that sound hard to you? It's okay. I'm okay with whatever answer you give me. I have some assumptions, okay, but I'm assuming you might say, yeah, it's kind of hard. Does it make you ask for the exceptions to the rule? Let me suggest to you for a second that submitting to government authorities isn't the problem. I'm going, to, I'm going to give you the word that's the problem. Submit is the problem. It's always the problem. It's a problem whenever contest God says to submit in. Wives submit to husbands, children to parents, us to leaders. It's always the problem. Submission rubs natural man raw. Submission's the problem. Because, because we all have loopholes, right? If, if authority, whatever authority was great and good and kind and benevolent, who wouldn't want to submit to that? But the word submission only applies when we don't want to. And we all have a loophole for that. What if they're jerks? What if they don't know what they're doing? What if they perpetually fall down? What what if they just hurt me? Do I have to submit then? Do you see what I'm saying? You should be asking questions. I would think you are. But I would tell you this. Specifically, when it comes to governing authorities, this is the classic American Christian acceptable sin. Like, if I, if I said to you, wives submit to husband, kids submit to your, your, your uh, parents, you'd probably go, yeah, that's, that's probably right. Difficult, but that's probably right. But what it seems to me that happens in the American church is that we all pot shot at authority in our government. Like, it's totally cool. We market that stuff. Complain and whine and worry. So this one gets like really to a place where we've guarded a particular sin, one that we call good, which is a travesty, by the way. So um, this is the the question that we've got to answer. Does God really, 
expect us to submit to bad authority? Does he, does he ask us to submit to even possible evil authority? Because that happens, doesn't it? You want the answer? Are you ready for the answer? You can't handle the truth. <laughs> yes. In fact, even what Paul is saying here makes his point really clear. He's talking about submission to governing authorities with Nero as the, as the emperor. Now, most writers would say Nero's not crazy yet. He's still tyrannical, but he's not, he's not lighting Christians on fire in his garden to make light for parties. But, but Peter, when he writes almost word for word what Paul writes, seven years later, he is. Nero is going crazy, and he's killing Christians for fun. And Peter writes, submit to authorities, even the emperor. Couldn't be more specific. So do you submit to bad authority? Yeah. How about the example of Nebuchadnezzar? You guys know this story, right? The emperor, the king of Babylon, who, um, this is his story. He comes into Jerusalem, he burns it down, destroys the temple, slaughters thousands, and takes the best and the brightest and the richest from the land takes it home. And this is what God himself says about Nebuchadnezzar and what he did. In uh, Jeremiah chapter 27, God calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant and says that all the land, all the possessions, and all the beasts he gave him. That's uncomfortable. Um, maybe we should consider Pilate. He was the governor during the time of Jesus' uh, trial and execution. You remember when Jesus was sitting silent before Pilate and wouldn't defend himself? And Pilate said, you better speak up. You know, I have the authority to do something about this. And Jesus says, no, you don't. You don't have any authority that what God gives, period. End of story. You're in place for one reason. That's the uncomfortable part of this imperative. Do we submit? Yes. But I'm going to give you a phrase to have you understand the essence of what we're talking about. All right? This all boils down to, do you believe in the sovereignty of God? If you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, then bad, evil, wicked, stupid leaders will drive you nuts because you're absolutely convinced that if they do it right, things will be totally different. Versus God being in charge of rulers, that he installs kings and princes. He does what he wants with the hearts of men and turns their hearts like a man which turn channels of water out of a faucet. That's what God does with leaders. This all boils down to sovereignty of God. And if you don't believe in a God who's in control of all things, then you're going to struggle with Paul's command. It doesn't make any sense. And I got to make it right. And I got to stop injustices. And I get that. I get that. But if you believe that for God's good reasons, that he's the one who establishes kings and kingdoms and nations and people and rulers, whether good or bad, if you believe that, that he does it for his sovereign purposes, even if you find yourself in a bad situation, a really bad situation, then uh, you'll submit yourself because you know ultimately it's God who you're submitting to and not him. You understand? Yes. Okay, I'll move on when you get it. All right. Maybe some of you hear the sovereignty of God and you, you want to put your hands up and say amen because you, that's your life. you live there. You live trusting God that he's in control of things, things that I don't understand, things that sometimes look bad at one perspective, knowing that God has a plan, that he's, he is truly sovereign. Some of you could be sitting here going, I don't, I don't buy that. I'm not happy with that answer. I predict to you too, um, to be honest, um, because there's questions that this, this imperative does to us naturally. 
reasonable questions, and God's not afraid of our questions. He's not afraid of us asking, and he's not afraid of us not understanding. So we need to really see if there's some other answers that help us understand uh, what Paul is saying here. And one of the questions that you might be wrestling with in a, in a declaration like submit yourself to all governing authorities is um, why would God allow a bad leader? Why would he allow a tyrant? Why would he allow injustice? Why, why does that happen? Believe it or not, the Bible does have answers. <laughs> I hope you like them, but they're biblical answers. Um, one reason, it's, uh, and I think uh, John Calvin said it best, that God sometimes gives a nation the rulers it deserves. Sobering. He goes to Romans 1 to describe what he means by that. If you've ever read Romans 1, it's almost terrifying to read it because it describes what natural man does apart from the grace of God. Natural man changes the truth for a lie. Although we know God, we don't acknowledge God, we don't worship God, and there's three phrases that Paul says happens from God to sinners who resist him. He gives us over. He gives us over. He gives us over. And what Paul says, too, is a debased mind that we don't do what we ought to do. And ultimately, I think what Calvin is trying to say about a Romans 1 perspective is that when a people, when a people reject God and his word, he gives us that kind of leader. There's another possible reason why uh, God would allow a bad reader, a leader, um, or a bad reader, however you want to see that. <laughs> God uses bad government to be his agent of judgment on a people. Israel perpetual knuckleheads would not obey God. He uses an evil country like Babylon and Assyria to come and deal with them, right? That's what the scriptures say, that God used Babylon to bring judgment on his people. Sometimes God raises up a bad leader, a tyrant, just to bring judgment. Or there's another reason, sometimes God shows his power in it. We've already learned this in Romans chapter 9, this, in the story of Pharaoh that Paul brings up for this point. Pharaoh enslaved Israel for 400 years, went through 10 plagues to change his mind, to let the people go. Paul says in Romans chapter 9, I raised Pharaoh up for this purpose, to show my power and make my name great. That's why God raises some bad leaders, just to show off. In a good way. There's, a, there's another possible reason why God allows bad, evil leaders and governments. And that is he tests the loyalty and the love of his, of his people. So, you have Nebuchadnezzar who takes Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego off to Babylon. And in spite of the laws, in spite of what Nebuchadnezzar commanded, these men stood for God, didn't they? at the risk of their own lives. Even David, who uh, God calls a man after his own heart, understood that he was the next king. Saul was going crazy at this point in time, trying to kill David. David did not retaliate, although he could a thousand times. Sometimes God allows wickedness in order to show the righteousness of his people. Make sense? So if you want to sort this out, okay, why, where does this bad leader come from? Why does God allow it? Maybe God is doing something bigger than you can see or you can imagine, but he's never doing anything wrong. Make sense? Okay, 
So the big idea is pretty simple here in these, two first, these first two verses. Submit to the governing authority because God is the one who gave it to us. Now, you might be sitting here asking even more good questions, and I suppose um, we should answer at least one of them. Most of the commentaries I read dealt with the idea of what is it like to, um, to express civil disobedience. When is it ever right? Does a people ever resist at a, at a level of, of disobedience? And the answer, very simply, first answer, biggest answer, is yes, sometimes. And it's simple. If they ever ask you to do something God forbids or forbid you to do something God commands, don't. And by the way, this isn't just unique to governing authorities. It's to any authority. If you're ever commanded to go against God, don't. Pretty simple. And again, going back to the story of the three men in the fiery furnace. They were commanded to worship God, but they did not at the risk of their own lives. They were civil disobedient men. Even Peter's a great example. Uh, Peter was preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. The Pharisees grabbed him, threw him in prison, right? They're going to judge this guy. Well, God lets Peter out, and they can't find him. The gate's been locked. The guards don't see him. They have no idea what happened. They find him in the synagogue preaching, and they pulled Peter back and said, we told you not to preach. What did Peter say? I obey God, not you. Which, which sometimes, maybe sometimes, we, we probably have to access that. But that's the, that's the point here. We can uh, disobey if they command us to go against our God. Make sense? I have another answer, and this one I need some grace on, okay? It's complicated. It's complicated. And I'm going to use some illustrations to make my point. There are some theologians who suggest that... Uh, Authority or governing authorities cease to be legitimate when they uh, move into tyrannical behavior or injustice, okay? So when they stop doing good for people, they stop being a legitimate authority. In fact, most of these guys that I read would suggest even the American Revolution was wrong, um, and some would say it's right. Good men who believe the gospel, believe that Jesus saved sinners, would line up on two different places on that one story alone. And, and most of us would respond to those circumstances based on who we are and how we're wired. I might go to war all the time. You might not. Does that make it from God? I'm not certain, but I think it's complicated. Uh, another great story is Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He was a Lutheran pastor, theologian, lived in the 30s, 40s in, in uh, Nazi Germany. When Hitler was coming to power, he split. He went to New York. He was invited to a, a seminary to go teach there and to live in America to avoid all what was going on. He got, he got here and was totally convicted he should never have left. And he felt like I should be with my people when they're going through the worst thing ever. I should be there and try, try to lead it. So Diedrich goes back to Germany. And ultimately, 1945, I think it was, that Diedrich was hung to death by the Nazi party because he was caught in a, in a plot to assassinate Hitler. Now, I've read theologians who line up on two different sides of that argument. It's never right to murder the king. And some would say it's totally right because he was going to kill six million Jews. It was right. And I have my own opinions on what I would do in that scenario. I suppose you can guess. But either way, um, <laughs> either way, the, po- the point is, is, is simple. That, that sometimes the nuances of where and when and how we act is really, really complicated. And here's, here's where I would give you just one like, bit of truth to try to sort this out. The scriptures make it very clear that, that God is the author of wisdom. He gives wisdom to whoever asks. He has a plethora of wisdom if we just simply ask. That's what James says. 
We might find ourselves, some of us, in situations where our personalities and our inclinations lean into something like rebellion when we think injustice has happened and, and uh, someone would say, no, 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 no. Passivity, passivity, be over here. I'm just suggesting if God's people are close to God's heart, pray a lot and ask for wisdom, we're way better off, right? No matter how this, these particulars turn themselves out. But with all that being said, those are the exceptions to the rule. For the most part, 99.9% of your life, Christian, the answer to this is simply submit to God and his sovereignty and uh, the government that he's placed before us. That's the, that's the command of Paul. Make sense? Pretty clear, right? And that works almost every bit of the time except, except for those exceptions. Let's, let's move on. The second thing that Paul says in verses 3 and 4 is that God gave the government to protect and to punish. Verses 3, verse 4. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Paul lays it out pretty simple, okay? First thing he says is be a good law-abiding citizen and you got nothing to worry about. If we submit and obey and respond like God wants us to, then it's for our good. In fact, he gives us two reasons. One, he says, we receive this governor's approval. It's the idea of testimony, reputation, or kindness. He will like you, okay? The second thing he says is that he is a servant for your good. Did you ever think that about the people who lead our government? God, God calls them through Paul a servant for us for our good. We experience that in a lot of different ways, whether it's the police who protect us on a, on a civic way in our, in our state. We experience it when the military defends our nation, protects our borders or whatever, and, and fights against uh, you know, injustice around the world or against us. We experience what it's like to have it be a servant for our good, for our protection and for our rest. But Paul also says here, but if you're a lawbreaker, you should be afraid. And he gives us two reasons for that too, because one is that they don't bear the sword for nothing. In other words, punishment, severe punishment, extreme reaction to breaking the law is, an, is an, a consequence to that, up to and including capital punishment. That's the whole point of a sword. A sword's meant to kill and destroy. And Paul uses that specifically to say that's the breadth of which the government has a response to deal with evildoers or lawbreakers. So if you want Paul's encouragement you get good if you're good as a law-abiding citizen, and you get wrath if you break the law. Anyone surprised by that? I hope not. He also says that he's God's servant for wrath. The way I like to picture it is that God gives government a big stick for a reason. Justice. I, I got in trouble last hour because I didn't mention ISIS, you know, in the sermon. I don't think this message is particularly about ISIS, although I think you can make a sermon. We just got a lot to do. But I do think a government gets a stick of righteousness to deal with things like that in the world. But specifically for us, this is a, a discussion about God giving authority to a, a government to deal with justice. And I suppose it's worth talking about. It's not arbitrary. It's an absolute justice. It's a right and wrong kind of justice, which is a little blurry in our day and age, right? 
James Boyce says this about the, the, the tension of understanding where and who gets to find what's right and what's wrong. He says there are two matters here, each enormously important now. First, the conviction that there is such a thing as good and evil. It's critical. For when Paul says that the state has been given the power to punish evil, he's assuming a moral standard to which not only the individual citizen but also the state must conform. In other words, the state should reward what is good and punish what is evil. In order to do that, the state must know what is good. And for that, there must be an objective moral standard outside itself, either discovered by it or given to it. This is extremely relevant today because American law has gone through a revolution in this area. John Whitehead was, has written a book about this called The Second American Revolution. The revolution Whitehead is writing about is the current rejection of rule of law that is objective and unchanging for a malleable sociological law that can be determined by the, by the jurist. Now let me explain. That sounds a little complicated. Here's what he means. In 1907, Supreme Court Justice Charles Hughes expressed the sociological understanding of law for the first time officially when he said, the Constitution is what the judges say it is. He meant that the justices are not bound by any absolute law and said they're free to find whatever they want in the law and even to change it. So there is no appeal beyond the Supreme Court, even if it's contrary to what the Constitution or other laws meant it to be. A moving line of morality. What's right is never always right. It might not be right now, and it might not be right for you. And so what happens, he says, ultimately what comes out is injustice. Some people get treated fairly, and some people unfairly because there isn't any absolute standard. What I'm suggesting, Paul says here, that, the, that God gives the government is the rule of justice, right and wrong. That's its role, whether it takes it or not, whether it does it well or not, is to exact out fairness and justice. Paul makes a third point in verse 5. We obey the government because it's smart and it's right. Verse 5. Paul says, therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Now, we've already dealt with the idea of wrath, that God has called um, the government to deal with uh, lawbreakers and disobedience with, with, uh, with consequence. But Paul adds one here that's predominantly a Christian thought. He talks about conscious sake. And the word conscious means with knowledge, okay? In other words, Paul's saying, Christian, you already know what you're supposed to do for conscious sake. You know. Here's why you know. Because the Spirit of God lives in your heart and he has sharp elbows and he tells you when you're in line and when you're not. This is the transformational part. This is the Romans 12, 1 and 2 part of this passage. This is the difference between um, just complying with law and, and doing it because our hearts are in line with it, right? It's exactly the, the way that Jesus dealt with law when he came and taught the greatest sermon ever preached. You've heard it said, but I tell you. And a series of things he said, don't kill, but I tell you, if you hate I tell you, don't do this, but I tell you, if you, and that's the essence of this. The Christian message in this is that there's a law written on our hearts. God's not looking for outward conformity. He's looking for transformation. And when we declare Jesus as Lord, we now have a conscience that dictates how we behave, right? Not just fear of the sword, which is a legitimate thing, Paul says, but more because we already know what's right. To line up because it is right. So one, uh, one guy I read compared the conscience to a sundial. I love this. He says it's not a perfect timepiece, but it's very 
fairly accurate as long as the sun is shining on it. Get it? Devoted to the scriptures, devoted to the king, loving Jesus, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Whenever there's a moment, whenever there's a moment to know what to do at that moment, we are so in tune with the king and his will, we do the right thing. For conscience sake, Paul says. One last thing. Paul makes this point in verses 6 and 7, that paying our taxes and giving respect to government officials is part of submission. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Did you notice that phrase in there, ministers of God? You should circle that because I'll bet you never thought about your governors and your president and your leaders as ministers. It's the exact same word used in Hebrews 1 of those who serve the temple and of angels who serve God. In other words, this is a sacred task God calls people who govern to. Of all the phrases that Paul could use to define what they do, he calls them ministers, priests, for our good, okay? Puts it in a different light, doesn't it? Maybe might make us feel bad about talking against God's anointed. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. He gets to taxes here in uh, verses 6 and 7. And the two words he uses for taxes, one the word taxes and the other revenue, just covers everything. It's what you have as property and it's what you buy in sales. It's everything. We are to pay taxes. And the assumption here from Paul is that the the taxes are a God-given means to serving the people. And it's right and it's good in spite of how you feel about them. So from the police and the fire department to schools and school districts to, to those who serve us, the point of taxes, Paul says here, is therefore you're good. It puts a structure together for the blessings and the be- benefit of the people. Now, I know you have a thousand excuses and you're looking for the loopholes. Yeah, but they misspend it and they do this. They, don't worry about that. That's, that's, that's when it gets out of order. This is the intention of it, right? And all Paul says about these taxes, bluntly, is pay them. So, do you? I've got a Christian friend who hasn't paid, Christian friend, who hasn't paid taxes in three, four years. I know you have a reason why you don't. I know, I know, I know. I know you don't trust them. I know. But maybe after looking and looking through the lens of God's sovereignty and control in view of the mercies of God, maybe you might see these things a little bit differently. Paul also says to give honor and respect. Do we? Here's how I hear the church too much. It just complains all the time. And it doesn't sound respectful. Like, it's not wrong to notice bad behavior, and it's not wrong to call out things like that, right? It's not wrong at all. John the Baptist called out Herod when Herod took his brother's wife. Jesus called Herod out. It's not wrong to call evil evil. That's not what I'm talking about. It's the tone and the tenor of how we respond to these things, right? Is it respectful, and is it honoring? That's a question you have to answer. The church has the obligation, according to Paul, to do that to respect them. I want to leave you with a couple of thoughts that uh, I think are good exercises. 
the first thing, if this is all you get, this is great, good enough for me. When it comes to how you respond to authority, government authority, I simply want you to consider the sovereignty of God. Do you really, really believe that God is in control of all things? Do you really, really believe it includes even a leader you don't like? Do you believe that? If you do, then I think there's some behaviors that'll come out of us. One is we'll pray for them, which is a biblical mandate, by the way. We'll pray for them. Two is we'll be grateful for it. One, one of the writers, I think it was Boyce, said about, about leadership, even, even bad government is better than no government because no government is anarchy, right? Are you grateful for it? Whatever it is, as much as it could be adjusted and tweaked and fixed and... Are you grateful for it? You pray for it. And let me just say this. Don't worry. Which is most of what you feel when, it, when, you, when you talk to Christians about this world. They are so convinced that some leader is going to do more than God allows. And I've never understood why we panic. Our kingdom is not of this world. Right? No? I'll just wait for you guys to get that is our kingdom of this world. No, not at all, not even a little bit. And there isn't a leader that's installed that God there. And he turns their hearts like a man would change the channels of water under a faucet. So rest in the sovereignty of God, pray for them, do, be grateful for the government you have, and don't worry. And I'll give you one last thing. We have a unique way to interpret this passage as Americans because our government is a government by the people and for the people. So bluntly said, you're the government. Some of you are uniquely called and gifted. You should be running for office somewhere to influence righteousness in a world. Good things, beneficial things, blessings to people. You, you should be involved at that level because we have a government that is self-governed. At least at the minimum. Every Christian should be a voter. Here's what they tell us, though. Every 10 of you in a row, four of you never vote, ever. And I'm going to just say, suggest to you, and this is going to sound pretty emphatic, I think that's direct disobedience to this passage. If we're going to live in a government that's governed by how we participate in it, to not vote, it says we are not submitting to the government. Do you understand? So vote, Some, at least at the minimum. Get out there and say, I, I think based on prayer and my best inclinations, this is what God wants, okay? It's not perfect, but it's what we have. And I'll just suggest something that's, that, that might be helpful to you. I, you need information, and I get that. And uh, last week we announced to you that Tom is, is doing a, a civic forum with both the candidates, uh, Fred Duvall on October 14th and Doug Ducey on October 28th. If you're needing information to make a wise decision, specifically locally here in Arizona, then you got to check that thing out on October 14th and 28th and get informed so that you can obey this passage, submit to the government, of which you're a voting member. Make sense? All right, let's pray together. God, we thank you for the gospel, that it changes everything. We thank you, God, that we, um, we can look at something as so um, in our face and practical as government and leadership and authority and understand that your gospel has an answer for that too. God, help us to live in view of your mercies, in light of your kingdom to come, with you as the Lord of all creation. I pray, God, that we would be a praying group, a trusting group, 
happy group because you're in control. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.